This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Morning, coming up to two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. My name's Dr. Beach. Hi, Dr. Beach. Oh, just a little bit sad. I know. I'm oh, no, sorry. No. I'm sorry. Commiserations. <laughs> yes, I'll um, reach for another Pinot. <laughs> Maybe a Chardonnay. Have they been plentiful? Uh, they have been plentiful, yeah. I'm a bit croaky this morning, you know. And commiserations to Kent too. He's um, panel pan- beating for us. I've got... I've got Tigers <laughs> and demons I fans are, are embracing each other in, um, in, in sadness this oh, morning. I, I need to play some kind of role, I think, some sort of counselling role for both of you. You do. I mean, all, all we can do, I guess, is say go pies. It's probably a bit hard for you, Kent, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 I watched the prelim yesterday from the Gasso and um, mentioned to um, to Mark, who was sitting next to me, who is a huge Collingwood fan, I said, it's going to be really interesting at the end of today's game because all of Melbourne are either going to be behind the Magpies or against the Magpies. It's going to be one of the two. And uh, I don't know, that was a big grand statement, of course, and we shouldn't talk in absolutes, but um, yes. Yeah. yeah, we went from various pubs. I, I went to three different pubs in the hope that it would get better. <laughs> and when we finally ended up at, at the park after having been to like the All Nations and then the Yarra, yeah, and then tried the park in the end, it just got worse. Yeah, went home. Well, what can you quiet. do? What can you do? Yeah. Thank you very much, Tim, for uh, for Vital Bits. Thank you very much, Andrew, for Soulful Bits. Thank you very much, Edith, for things to do today. Indeed. 
uh, on our program today. We're going to shortly cross to Neil Blake. He is live on location, going to do a report from the Mooney Ponds Creek Paddle Against Plastic. So this is a really great group. Um, it's actually organised by Ocean Crusaders and the Clear Water Group, um, both active in the litter scene, according to Neil. Um, but they're doing a paddle uh, up the Mooney Ponds Creek or around the Maribyrnong, we'll clarify that with Neil, uh, collecting all sorts of stuff out of the creek, but also just drawing attention to the problems that exist. And Neil Blake is, of course, our much-loved baykeeper. Yes. And he's going to give us a little report on some... Um, the, the uh, um, Not Phillip Island. St Kilda Penguin Study Group are doing some work tonight and he's going to be part of that too. Excellent. Yeah. Look forward to that. Uh, we're going to cross to Dr Surf, who will uh, talk up the surf, which he reckons is the best that it's been for a long, long time over the last fortnight. It's grinding. It's pumping. It's off. It's going off. <laughs> Uh, then we're going to cross to, um, lots of crossing today, to um, Darren Cottom. Actually, yeah, we're going from um, Mooney Ponds Creek to, I don't know where Dr Surf is, somewhere, somewhere where the surf's good. Um, and uh, and then to Geelong to speak with Darren Cottom from um, EPA Victoria, who's going to talk to us about Drain Detectives. It's a, a new program, I think it's new, um, inviting anyone to be part of this program, playing a role in monitoring beaches around Port Phillip Bay and uh, helping them with their work in trying to work out what goes into stormwater drains. And all sorts of drains, I'd imagine. Drains going into Gardner's Creek, for example, that then will go into the bay. Yes. I've seen that a few times, stuff pouring out of this. So, yeah, I want to talk to him. There's some nasty how stuff can, going How on. can you report it? Yeah. We'll find out. Monitor it. And then to, um, to close the show, we're joined by a couple of very keen students um, coming into that they are here already, in fact, Africa and Calm, and they're going to talk to us about future coastal development in Victoria in particular. Best practice models. Best practice models, how we can do it better, what are some of the mistakes of the past and um, what do we have to consider as we move forward into uncertain times, changing times. Good to have some young brains on the case. Sure as hell is, yeah. It's lovely to see students getting enthused about a topic and then wanting to come on air and share it with everyone. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I miss being a student. Do you? That was fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't you? Uh, I, I I don't miss it around this time of year, exams. I, well, de- true. I, I have deep sympathy for them all. That's, that's what it, you, It's that's, pretty hard. It's the price that you pay for um, the, the lifestyle of a postgrad, of not postgrad, well, postgrad students even better, but, um, yeah, it's that tertiary life. It, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. we can reminisce. We can reminisce. Instead of doing some reminiscing, why don't we uh, have a look at what's happening weather-wise today, Dr Beach? Let's do that. It's going to be um, 14 degrees, minimum of 10, cloudy, high chance of morning drizzle. Indeed, there's a little couple of spots out there if you're still snuggled up under the doona. Don't hurry to get out of there. Uh, clearing to partly cloudy afternoon, winds south 15 to 25 kilometres per hour. So just a little bit of a drizzle, less than one millimetre. Tomorrow's going to be 15 degrees, partly cloudy. Um, 16 Tuesday, warming back up Wednesday to 20 and on Thursday as well. And then oh, next week, back down to 15. Hmm. A little bit of rain throughout the week, not much, less than a millimetre every day. If you're heading out on the water, you'll want to know what's happening with the tides. At Point Lonsdale, it is high tide. It's going to be high tide at 10.30, so in about an hour and a half. That's what it's looking like. Okay. I wonder what the, uh, wonder what the diving's like. We should ask a diver. Well, we will. Um, actually, if you, if you, oh, Ken's panelling for us today, so it's going to be difficult to get a call from you. If you could send us a message via our Facebook page and let us know what the diving's going to be like today. We yeah, might, that's right. You might. could be a new diver. No, no, not, well, fill in dive reporter. <laughs> Terry's going to be I'll in get next a week. Actually, Terry's supposed to be in next week, but now that, um, now that the pies are in the grand final. 
Maybe I'll be able to line up a backup. <laughs> I see a rabid pie supporter. Oh, yes. God. Big time. I, I get that. that. That makes complete sense, actually. Really? <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> we love you, Terry. Good luck next week. All right, we've got time for a little bit of news. What there has, well, there has been a bit of news. The one that piqued my interest um, was um, giving octopuses MDMA otherwise known as ecstasy. I missed this. You missed this entirely. Okay, there was a paper which was published in um, the prestigious journal Current Biology. And this, well, it did get a bit of reportage in The Guardian and um, I think it got to the ABC yesterday. But octopuses have very different brains to humans. MDMA, mm. otherwise known as ecstasy, gives us a flood of serotonin. It's kind of thought of as the social drug. People become very, very friendly when they do this or when they um, engage in those things. And octopuses have very different brains to humans and they are, well, this species of octopus that these people looked at is very asocial. So right. they don't like to hang out with one another. So they decided to do an experiment to see if there were, in fact, serotonin receptors in octopuses. And a way to do this is to flood the octopus with serotonin and to see what the result was. So they put a little bit of, dissolved some MDMA in the water in a tank, put the octopuses in there and they took that up through their gills. The octopuses were then presented with three options. So one cage had an octopus in it, the other cage was empty, and the, and the third cage had a little action figure in it. They didn't say in the paper if it was like, you know, a little <laughs> Spider-Man or whatever. Thor or the Flash or something. Yeah. In the control <laughs> experiment where the octopus hasn't had MDMA, they will go to the empty cage and they won't hang out with the other octopus. In fact, they'll steer way clear as they normally do. The ones which had a little bit of, little bit of E, as it were, they were behaved very, very differently. They went straight to the cage where the other wow. octopus was and exposed parts of their body that they would normally <laughs> not expose to another octopus and engaged in activities such as being very, very concerned or interested or in love with the aquarium bubbler in the corner and all these sorts of beautiful things. How that fascinating. It is, it's very fascinating. But, the, but the, the biological thing from this is that this shows us that octopuses, even though they are separated from humans, for example, from mammals, octopuses are invertebrates, of course, by about 500 million years of evolution, still have the capacity to do this with serotonin. So once serotonin is presented to them, once they get, well, through MDMA, once they get serotonin released, then they have the capacity then to engage in social activity. So it shows us that there's a deep, deep evolution um, or deep history of how serotonin works in animals. That's absolutely fascinating. I wonder how they went getting through the ethics committee. I wondered about that too because another thing I read said that they really weren't sure if it would have any effect, so they chucked a whole lot, like more than you would give to a human, to the octopuses to start off with, and they just essentially kind of freaked out, jumped up into the corner of the aquarium and sort of like shivered and Aww. looked around, Yeah, which I thought was a bit That's off bit, actually. Yeah. And then thought, oh, okay, they do react, so let's give them a normal dose. They gave them so-called normal dose, what you would give to a human, you know, going with body weight. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, had the, a very, very similar effect to, to what you see in humans. Absolutely fascinating. It was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Dr Beach. And there was one... Have we got, have we got a second? Just one yeah. other news item. So this is a paper that appeared in Science and they're um, geomorphologists or geologists in, um, in Canberra who, at Australian National University who have shown, looking at so-called pancake fossil of a thing called Dickinsonia, They've been able to measure the sterols, so the lipids. They've got like a sort of fossil signature of lipids. You can do it using a machine called a mass spectrometer looking at all these lipids. And they were able to show that, in fact, the lipids in this fossil, which 
has been debated over the years whether it's a very, very large unicellular organism. This is something that existed before the Cambrian explosion, about 15 million years before that, and people have debated for a long time what these things, which kind of look like animals, they're sort mm. of these flat pancake things, um, whether they in fact were. And they've been able to show, using a sterile signature thing, sterile, not sterile, sterile, as in cholesterol, mm. that they have sterols, or lipids, which you only find in animals in there. So they were able to determine that in a fossil, which comes from Russia, actually, from um, near, I think, the White Sea in Russia. Yes. Um, that, yeah, these guys are animals. But, so this shows that these fossils, Dickinsonia, which has been debated for a very, very, very long time as to what they are, that they are, in fact, animals, and these are the first earliest known animals to have existed. The fossil's fascinating. Um, we're going to put a link to this on our Facebook page. Uh, I'll do it this afternoon. There's a... Um, it looks a bit like a thumbprint. It does look like a thumbprint, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it, it's flat. It does have what we call bilateral symmetry. So you and I have bilateral symmetry, Bron, whereas things like jellyfish have radial symmetry. Mm. And it's a very, very early example of something with bilateral symmetry. Really, really flat. People were unsure if it was even... Yeah, it might even be a huge, huge ancient bacterium. I love this comment that I read um, in, uh, this was through an age reporting of this. Um, not, not clear what Dickinsonia evolved from, nor what they evolved into. In fact, it's likely they did not evolve at all. When modern animals emerged, they were probably eaten, fueling the rise of the animals. It, it, yes, that's right. In the Cambrian explosion, which happened about 15 million years after this, the presence of the, these Dickinsonia, which are first found in the Edicaria Hills in South Australia mm. back in the 1940s. Um, but since then, people have found them all over the world, various different fossil beds. And the ones in Russia were just very, very, very well preserved. They were almost mummified, actually. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Dr. Beach. It's, it's a pleasure. Awesome. Uh, it is 13 minutes past nine. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. Triple R. I've been listening to, I listen to a lot of Triple R anyway, but. Lately in particular, I've been spotting some fantastic water theme tracks on other programs. So I'm going to play a couple of these today because we know that some of you perhaps listen more on the weekend than you do during the week. So um, with with, uh, a hat tip to Phoebe Squared, um, this I heard on Maps a couple of weeks ago. This is uh, Wild Nothing and Shallow Water. That was Shallow Water by... Wild Nothing, taken from their release Indigo from uh, not long ago, 2018, earlier this year. It's 9.18 and you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Without further ado, we're now going to cross to Neil Blake, our very own baykeeper, who is live on location uh, at the Mooney Ponds Creek Paddle Against Plastic. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Ron. Spectacular day down here. Fantastic. We've got Dr Beach here as well, Neil. G'day, Dr Beach. How are you going, Neil? Um, very well, thank you. So, uh, yeah, give us a bit of a... You said it's a lovely day down there. Um, what's what's going on? This is... you live on location. Are you actually on the water? Uh, I'm actually standing on the banks of the creek. Uh, at the moment, there are uh, a number of people have just uh, hit the water in canoes. Uh, so there's probably around about 20 or so canoes here, down here that Ocean uh, Crusaders have provided. And those people are going to be rowing upstream collecting trash and there's a couple of dragon boats looking spectacular that are uh, going to ferry the trash that's collected so that they'll take the bigger bigger items so uh, the mosquito fleet is what Ian uh, Thompson described the canoes as 
and they'll be putting them into the, the uh, context of what they collect into the dragon boats. Uh, there's a skip down here too, which has got uh, about half a dozen shopping trolleys and almost full that's, uh, that has stuff that's been collected just over the last uh, couple of days. And also about uh, oh, five, two cubic metre bags of bottles and cans that have also been collected down here over the last couple of days. It's um, amazing work that this group does. Is this something that they do semi-regularly? Do they, is, it, is there a particular event that this is for or is this something that happens um, fairly frequently? Uh, well, the, the Ocean Crusaders uh, have been based in Queensland, so they've been, on this occasion, uh, invited down to, supported by the Port of Melbourne Corporation to, to do some clean-ups. So uh, they're, they're sort of rel- relatively recent arrivals on the Melbourne scene, but it's certainly a good, uh, a good initiative. Uh, the other group too that is in, involved with them also from interstate is the Clear Water Group, and they've got a giant vacuum cleaner, which is <laughs> quite a remarkable thing that can be uh, mounted on barges or, or or on a ute to to, to actually go and vacuum uh, riverbanks or or reed beds. Um, I, you sent me a photo um, before we went to air, which I'm going to put on our Facebook page, and it's a mini skip with all kinds of stuff in it. There's a shopping trolley in it as well. Do you, yeah. Does the group or do you have a sense of how a lot of this stuff is getting into the creek? Is um, It's the, the timing of you being on location is, is pretty cool because our next guest is going to be talking to us about a new program around, it's called Drain Detectives. Oh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Neil. Yes, uh, I have heard of that. That's great. Yeah, so there's this whole thing about, of course, a lot of... Um, a lot of litter and a lot of you know the rubbish ends up in creeks and and eventually in the in the ocean waterways through the stormwater system. What's happening with Mooney Ponds Creek? What's the what's the sense of how it's all getting in there? Uh, well, I guess um, you know there's a lot of uh, uh, industry up along in the Mooney Ponds catchment, as I understand. So some of the smaller things like the myrtles and also a lot of polystyrene. Though, so uh, most of it's just coming from the streets whether they be sort of in industrial precincts or around sports grounds, that sort of thing. Uh, when, when it rains, that just gets washed down into the drains and then into the creek. Neil, have you, um, have you hauled up anything um, particularly interesting or surprising that might lead to allude to some previous crime, perhaps? Uh, not, not today, as yet, uh, Dr Beach. I haven't actually been foraging at this stage. We, we just had a briefing as a group. There's probably around about 60 people that turned up at this stage and uh, they were just given the safety briefings and told where they were going to be heading and uh, a little bit of a, you know, coach's pep talk and all that sort of thing. Uh, and so we're, people are just starting to get into it now. And you mentioned that you had a, like a giant vacuum cleaner there. Is anyone going magnet fishing? Uh, no, well, there, there is actually, I do have in my possession, but not here today, a, a magnet, and that's something that I was thinking uh, I should perhaps uh, uh, put give to the Ocean Crusaders or the Yarra River Cape, but ideally you'd need a boat for it. Uh, but uh, it, I guess it could be just suspend, suspended off piers and walks too, uh, so, but that's something that uh, uh, definitely is worth, worth exploring. 60 people turning up on a drizzly Sunday morning is pretty impressive. Um, is it the, this group, are they looking out for, I guess all groups are always looking out for more volunteers and more people to get involved. If, uh, yes. if our listeners are um, out your way and are wanting to go down and um, it's probably a bit late to be getting on the water but to help out with some of the stuff that's getting pulled out, is there a possibility people can do that this morning? 
Uh, yeah, if people wanted to come down, the event goes until 12, and there is a marquee that's been a welcome marquee. And uh, so basically, if people head down Docklands Drive, uh, right around to past Ron Barassi Senior Reserve, there's a sporting oval down here, uh, and then a car park, so they'll be able to find the uh, location right at the end of that uh, Docklands Drive. Okay, so Docklands Drive is the place to go. Um, and before we let you go, Neil, and we'll get you back in studio in uh, in a few weeks' time, um, uh, you mentioned earlier to me off air, but uh, some work that you're going to be doing this afternoon with the St Kilda Penguin Study Group. Yeah, the Penguin Study has just taken up again after a bit of maybe a six month or so hiatus, but uh, uh, and um, that, that's going to be interesting to see the colony is in full swing breeding at the moment and just to see how they're doing. Was, uh, the first time I visited the colony was in 1986 when I was a small child, Ron. Uh, <laughs> no, actually not that small. But, uh, I think uh, we were at Kinder together, Neil. Yeah, that's right. There were 66 penguins in St Kilda in those days and now there's about 1,400. Uh, so I guess the, the key is they're, they're the indicator species for the top of the bay, you know, particularly about what's coming out of the rivers. And uh, it's great to be able to still keep an eye on them and, and see that they are thriving and hopefully we can make sure that that continues into the future. 66 to 1,400, that's an incredible turnaround. Um yeah, when you come in in a few weeks, it'd be great to uh, to get the latest on what's happening with the St Kilda penguins. And I think such great work drawing attention to them as well that there's a lot more awareness of what needs to happen to keep them safe. So, um, that's yeah, well, it is a large colony, and and part of that is attributable to the fact that there's so much community effort going into keeping safe. Yeah, and that just cannot be uh, understated or, or underestimated in terms of its value. Thanks, Neil. We're going to let you get back to what you're doing down there. So, Mooney Ponds Creek. Yeah, Paddle against plastic. It's running until noon. If you want to go along, if you're uh, if you're down that way, go down Docklands Drive. And all I've got, I've scribbled down Docklands Drive, Ron Barassi. But I reckon if you put those in your search <laughs> engines, you'll, you'll work yeah. out where to go. Ron Barassi Senior. I didn't know there was a junior, but anyway, it was Ron Barassi Senior Reserve down there. Okay, Fed. Ron Barassi Senior Reserve. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks, Neil. We'll catch you soon. Okay, bye for now. Neil Blake there, our baykeeper. And, and a very nice reminder, as you said, of how, well, I guess it rep- represents the health of the bay that we've got so many more penguins at the St Kilda Penguin Colony It's now. fantastic, isn't it? You just hear stories like that and just, just get that sense, yes, we're, we're heading in the right direction. And sometimes it's hard to keep keep uh, keep that in mind, but we definitely, we are heading in the right direction. Yeah, we just, are. Need to keep on, keep on working. All right, 9.27, time for a surf report with Dr Surf. Good morning, Dr Surf. Good morning, Brian. Can you hear me? We can indeed. We can. How are you going, Surf? I'm good, Beach. How are you? Well, I'm a little bit sad, but, you know, I'll get over it. Yeah, we're all a bit sad, but anyway. Yeah. How's the surf? I hear it's, it's going off. No, not today. Thank God it's gone on shore. I really, it's today, if you want to wave today, you're going to have to go to the north end of Phillip Island because it's, the winds turn southeast. There's a bit of swell, but it's choppy and onshore. And it's the first time in a couple of weeks when it's been pretty bad. But the last two weeks, holy moly. <laughs> oh, I worked out in, in my um, ignorance that out of the last 14 days, we've had 12 days where it's been ranging from good to totally epic <laughs> and Wednesday night sorry Tuesday night to Wednesday morning was just totally epic as good as it gets so even old fellas on males like me got barrels. <laughs> 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 
So it, it was a big Wednesday last week, was it? Wednesday early was very good. And uh, Tuesday night was even better because the swell hit. And it's just been, it's been offshore the whole time. And it, the last week has been the best week in living memory because the swell's just kicked every afternoon. Came up again Friday afternoon. We got good waves yesterday morning. It's just been fantastic. But it's September, so it's to be expected. It's like the, the last hurrah before the terrible winds come in. And they have come in today. It's not looking too good for the first few days of uh, the school holidays. I think it's going to stay on shore. Maybe early Tuesday morning going into Wednesday, it'll turn offshore. But that's okay. You know, we need a rest. Um, uh, Dr. Surf, I saw something on the news. Uh, it was either last night or the night before about uh, a big surfer. I don't know who he is, and I'm sure you do, who's come across from, I think, Hawaii to surf at Bells. Do you know much about him? No. <laughs> but it's quite common that, that if a big swell comes in and, and they can predict them several days ahead, that one of the sponsored surfers from whether it's Rip Curl or, or Quicksilver or someone will come over and surf that and they'll have all the photographers there and they'll use the shots in their ads. In, uh, I mean, I think in 2005 I was lucky enough to be in Raglan in New Zealand when a 10-foot swell hit and the Hawaiians hit it from Rip Curl with their complete entourage and they weren't popular with the locals but you know that's what they do they follow the big swells around and get photos and use them in promotions so so this this big swell this has been coming in like it's so all ocean beaches west side peninsula side mornington bellarine it came up we've had good swell for two weeks and by that i mean it hasn't really dropped below four foot and the big swell came in Tuesday night. You could see it coming. Um, they have these wave boys uh, maps with colours. And the darker the colour, the bigger the swell. And if, it, if, it, if this big blob of dark red came up from the south, and you could see it coming. So we knew. And um, it was a, a ground swell from a long way away, so it was up to 20 seconds period, which is a very strong swell. And, but there's been several of them. It's just that the, this one on last week was was a, a real classic. And um, but they tend to peter off in October. You need the big storms down in the Southern Ocean, and, and with the warmer weather, they, they go away. Hey, Doctor Surf, we're going to let you go, but you're going to be in studio in a couple of weeks' time, I believe. I am, and I'm, I'm going to talk about something very important. I've found a study um, through Swellnet the Surf Life Saving Australia have released a report of all the injuries and drownings over the past 12 months and there's some interesting learnings in there for surfers. Okay. Even that the weather's about to warm up, there'll be a lot more people coming into the water that haven't been in the water all winter, so I'm going to give a little warning. To all right. Be careful. That sounds really good. And Community anyway. service announcement. Yeah, important with summer important with summer coming up as well too, um, to take exactly as you said, just learn some lessons from the past. All right, good on you, Dr. Surf. Thank you very much. Um I've actually oh, are you near a radio? Because I've I've actually programmed the next track specifically for you. Yeah, I'm still in the car, but we're in we're in sunny Carlton now. Okay. So I'll, be, I'll look forward to listening <laughs> to the music. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll let you go, you can turn your radio on and we'll catch you in a couple of weeks. Great. Okay, see, see ya. ya. Bye.
Dr Surf there with the Surf Report. Now, as we all know and know all too often and we witness firsthand, pollution from stormwater drains can impact the water quality of our beaches, both on the sand and in the water. The pollution comes from somewhere, doesn't it? But where and how are some weather conditions more likely to lead to beach pollution from stormwater drains? How long do stormwater drains flow after rainfall? EPA Victoria is looking to find the answers to these questions and they want you to help. How might you ask? Well, to tell us more, we welcome from EPA Victoria Drain Detective Superintendent Darren Cottam. Good morning, Darren. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Good morning. How are you? Good, thanks. I just gave you that title. I hope that's okay. <laughs> no, it's very good. I might keep that. It could be Chief Inspector. Chief Inspector. <laughs> I like the sound of that. I like that. Yeah, you, get, you get a badge as well, Darren. <laughs> now, before we go any further, I have to declare up front a, uh, I suppose you could call it a conflict or a mutual interest that um, we, we do work together, Darren. So got to get it, get it out there first up. So there you go. I've done that. Now that I've done that, let's dive right in. Can you tell us about Drain Detectives, what it's what it's all about? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so look, Drain Detectives uh, is a two-year project uh, which has been funded by the Victorian Government's Port for the Bay Fund. Um, so basically it's a project where we are looking to use some innovative approaches to monitor and tackle pollution um, coming from drains that flow onto our beaches in Port Phillip Bay. Um, so at the moment, we don't have a lot of information about um, drain flows. Uh, so we do monitoring once a week, or EPA does monitoring once a week during the summer, uh, usually on Tuesday morning. Um, but there's no one who's actually monitoring the flows coming from drains. So we don't know whether there's pollution occurring on other days of the week. So the purpose of this project is to work with the community and also use some, some of those technology in terms of sensors to determine if there's actual pollution coming down drains and whether there's an issue that we need to tackle. Uh, Darren, it's, it's, it's Dr Beach here. I didn't introduce myself before. But um, when you say monitoring flows, is this looking for unusual coloration for example or if people see something which is coming out of the drain which doesn't look like it's yeah you know, it looks like a bit of toxin or something something blue for example which might alert you to something else being dumped in further upstream yeah look, the focus of this project is you know we're trying to reduce um bacterial pollution coming into the beaches so you know we get a lot of bacteria in the water and people go swimming and they can swallow the bacteria and then they can get sick. So that's the type of pollution that we're, we're looking to stop. So uh, normally we wouldn't be expecting there to be um, water coming down drains during dry weather, for example. So uh, if people are seeing water coming down drains during dry weather, then um, through this project we'd be looking for people to um, let us know, basically. So. What we're doing um, in the project is that we'll have signs up at uh, five different drains around the bay, so at Sandrium, Nentone, Moriarrick, uh, Dromara and Ride Beach. Uh, so we have signs up asking people to use their smartphones to take photos and make a couple of observations if they're seeing flows coming down drains. And the observations we ask for is you know, what's the colour of the water, for example. So is it clear or is it like a, a brown colour or is there an odour? Like, for example, does it smell like sewage? Stuff like that. And that's all really useful information for us tonight because we simply just don't have that information at all. So we talked a little bit about what um, stormwater shouldn't look like. What, what should stormwater look like? If, if you see some stuff coming out of a drain, what, what are we really looking for? 
So basically, um, what we don't want is, is during dry weather, and it's really, that's a big focus for us. Obviously, a lot of people go swimming during dry weather. <clears throat> so ideally, we shouldn't be having trains flying while there hasn't been any rain. Um, but look, what we're, what we're looking for is um, we certainly don't want water coming down there that smells like sewage, the top of a sewage smell, because that means that you could have high levels of bacteria going into the bay causing you to be sick. Um, in more extreme examples, you might um, you know, might see things like toilet paper, things like that, which really should be going to the sewer system, sewage system, instead it's going into the stormwater, and sometimes that occurs. Mm. We've seen um, the rise and rise of citizen science over the, this is now the 21st year that we've been broadcasting this program. Have you found with your role that citizen science is really starting to make some really good contributions to what we're learning about our environment and how can we make it better? Certainly in the early days there was some concern and some scepticism about the value of citizen science, but we've sort of noticed in other areas that it's really uh, it's really hitting its straps now. Are you finding that too? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, particularly um, in terms of water quality, as an example, um, we can't we can't be out there every day, but we know that the community are out there. Um, so, in terms of what they're seeing out there, and potentially also the data and all the type of monitoring they can do is really useful for us. So, for example, um, you know, we'd be asking volunteers to use simple these simple tests of water quality. Um, if they see trains flying, and that's providing us the data that we normally never be able to get. Um, also, the citizen science will, I think, will become <clears throat> more and more important, especially with um, the development of technology and quick and easy to use rapid detection of of different pollutants. And we're starting to see that some of that development now. Um, and that's so. For example, um, <clears throat> you know, in a few years' time, there'll be quite quite easy kind of um, test kit that you can just plug onto your smartphone and put a little probe in the water um, and you'll be able to actually detect what the type of water quality is. Oh, cool. Send it into EPA, for example. That's amazing. And, and you're absolutely right. And I say this all the time. We talk about... We talk about phones, but they're not really phones anymore. They're computers and they're cameras. And if you kind of realise, you know, the power of the smartphone, what it can harness and... and using it for good <laughs> rather than evil. There's, there's, some, there's some really great stuff that can be done. What have you got planned for and training people? Because um, this is a, an opportunity to call out to people. And You mentioned those five beaches. They're all down the eastern side of the bay, extending down to Rye on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, presumably not sending people out there. Uh, well, obviously not up stormwater drains. We're just looking for the stuff that's coming out at the end. Um, are you going to train people up? Yes, we are. So... Um in October, we're going to we're going to set up some training sessions. So it only, it only take an hour and a half of people's time. And so basically, it would just be explaining what we what we need in terms of the monitoring. Um, and really, we're looking for people who are you've already going down to the beach anyway, going for walks or taking their dogs for walks, or, or maybe they want an excuse to go down to the beach. Um, but basically, it would involve um, taking them to the drains that we that we need the monitoring to occur, and just introducing them to the drains how they do the monitoring via smartphone, but also uh, we'd be looking to give them a, a small water quality test kit as well. So I think you could put it in a bum bag, for example. Um, and basically it's very simple um, and you can get a result in five minutes and they can send that result into EPA. But we're looking for that to take about, um, about an hour and a half of, of training at, at a beach. 
uh, and and a beta that that expressed their interest in, um, and we're looking to do that uh, more towards the end of October. Darren, those those water quality test kits would they be looking for high bacterial levels or for say pollutants, um, other pollutants, say industrial pollutants like toxins? Yeah, look, at, so our focus is definitely that bacterial water quality. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, you know, we don't have a, any kind of rapid detection test. Um, you know, we're still developing that technology. So what we use at the moment is a indicator of fecal pollution, so ammonia. And ammonia can be found in, in feces and urine, and so that's why we test for that in the water. And because that's what we want to know in terms of, you know, is there fecal pollution coming down the drain? Um, that's what we're really looking to focus on in this project. So the ammonia test kits are a handy little test. Uh, you simply uh, dip a little, dip, a little dipstick in the water and it takes five minutes to come up with a, a colour-coded result um, and then email it into EPA. And what happens, Darren, if people do come across uh, high levels of ammonia or other things? Um, Dr Beach was talking earlier about you know, potentially chemicals, paint, oil, that sort of thing. Uh, what would you expect volunteers to do if they come across those sorts of things? So basically um, you'd be looking to take a photo um, of the drain flow for us, make a couple observations around the colour and the, if there's an odour or not, and then send that into us. Um, and look, the, the, the focus of this project is that, um, you know, the, we don't know what the extent of pollution will be like because nobody's actually monitoring trains at the moment. But what we're really kind of focusing on is patterns of pollution. Um, so basically, we want to see if if there's similar types of pollution occurring on particular days at particular times. Um, and then that, that's really useful data for us because it helps us to zone in on that date and that time and to start to do source tracking. So what I mean by source tracking is then try to source it, sorry, try to track it back up the train system and find out where it's coming from and then try to actually fix that problem. So we mentioned those five beaches. Um, do you want to mention them again <laughs> for people who are listening? Yes, uh, so Sandrium, um, Mentone, Mordialic, Dramana and Rye. And the focus um, you know, obviously those are quite broad suburbs, but um, the focus is outside of life-saving clubs. So when I'm saying Sandrium, I'm really talking about Sandrium life-saving clubs. Yeah, great. And and is there potential for this to expand maybe to the western side of Port Phillip Bay, to Western Port and beyond that? Is, this is a bit of a test year for you? Yeah, there's a two-year study. Um, it's, a, it's a pilot, so we are already testing this approach in terms of um, hopefully getting the, the community on board and using water quality sensors to, to determine whether there's a problem turned on the drains. Um, so we'll evaluate after two years and then look to see whether it, it's worthwhile continuing and whether we need to expand it out. Um, but the focus for the two years is on primarily on the east coast, um, just because we're working with three councils. So um, we're working with Bayside, Kingston and uh, Moines Peninsula councils. So those are the beaches that we'll be focusing on. And there's obviously a lot of beaches down the east coast, so they'll keep us busy. Fantastic. All right, thanks so much, Darren. It's been really uh, fascinating and interesting and good luck with the program. Where can our listeners go for more information if they want to take part in this? Yeah, look, thanks. If they could go to the EPA Victoria website um, and in the search field just type in citizen science uh, and that will take them to the citizen science page 
and they're about to see a link on there for train detectives and they can register their interest um, they can also put down their name and let us know what beach they're interested in and we'll be in contact great awesome look thanks so much and good luck with the program we look forward to getting you back on um, once it's once you've got some results through and finding out how it all went no, that's great thanks very much all right great thanks darren thank you talk to you soon bye for now Darren Cottam there. I think we've called him um, Drain Detective Superintendent. That's right. Or ch- Chief, <coughs> Chief Superintendent. Yet another example of what you can do to um, well, get involved. Yeah, and I love the idea of, you know, potentially down the track having an app or something that where you can just plug plug your little tester straight into your phone and it'll tell you what's in there. I can imagine myself racing around to all sorts of drains and going, gotcha. <laughs> I can imagine you doing that too, Dr. Beach. <laughs> Uh, the show is Radio Marinara. You are on 3 Triple R. My name's Dr Beach and I'm joined in the studio today by Bron Burton. And also we are welcoming two very enthusiastic students. We have Africa and we have Callum here to tell us about the future of coastal development in Victoria. How are you going, guys? Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Dr Beach. Good, thanks. Thanks for having <laughs> us on. So you're undergraduate students in science, environmental science, is it? Sure. Uh, I'm mm. a Bachelor of Science student. And majoring in plant science and Callum's in science, I believe. Fantastic. Yes. So, future of coastal development in Victoria, what inspired you to do a bit of research on this and then come on here and tell us about it? Well, currently with the state of the climate and with many people being more concerned about where it's going, especially with construction and development, um, we thought it would be a good way to discuss the future of well, the coastal environment and development. Yeah, and we think it's really important because of rising sea levels, which is especially a pertinent topic this year because 73% of Australian voters are now concerned about climate change higher than ever. <laughs> they, they sure are, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting uh, figure there, 73%. Yeah, it was recent poll. It's been shared all over most of the news outlets. And indeed even in Nature this week they were talking oh, about that and, and how that sits at odds with what the government is doing at the moment. For sure. Or what they're not doing. Yeah, since the most recent government reshuffle, we've abandoned the national energy guarantee as well as pressures to scrap the climate change pa- Paris Agreement, yep, yeah, probably going to go. Full on. <laughs> so, um, Callum. Yes. Um, so, temperatures rising... Yes, with all of that, we also thought there might be an increased desire for people to move closer to the beach because we know Australia loves its beachside living. We love our beaches so much. Um, so we thought with the changing climate, rising temperatures and the, yeah, Australia's beach passion, we thought it would be a good topic to discuss. So what it would, in your opinion, what's the state of the coastline at the moment, development on the coastline? Well, as we know, or most of us know, according to that poll, that... Sea levels are currently rising and will continue to rise. There's approximate about 82 centimetres in the next 80 years, which could up, affect up to a quarter of a million houses along the coastline. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the 82 centimetres, it's not 82 centimetres vertically because that's not how the, yeah. that's not how the coastline works. It's. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so they've measured the 82 centimetres based on that sort of pool theory, which is obviously not exactly how it would occur. But... Some it will be that's the average, I believe. So, it, some houses on low lying areas would be affected more, and those dune habitats as well. So, what's being done to protect habitats before we get on to, to building stuff on the coast? What's being done to protect habitats by the coast? Well, most council areas have revegetation projects to try and get the vegetation to be what it used to be. Yeah. And then we also have 
councils looking to like, prosecute those people who are illegally clearing people in the places in the foreshore, like cutting down big trees to increase beach views and extend yeah. properties, which still happens and is in local papers all the time. And so there's judicial ramifications for that. So we can hope that that deters that a little bit and there's improvements in yeah. that area. So houses that might be under threat of sea level rise, what, to, what can we do about that? You mentioned that earlier on. Well, there's a few strategies at the moment, and uh, the most simple of which will just be raising housing levels. And then we've also got the option of hard shore. Actually elevating the house. Yeah, elevated on houses. On stilts. Like, yeah. Yeah, stilts is one example, but then there's also just simple like building blocks, for example. Yeah. Um, then there's hard shoreline structures like seawalls, and <coughs> some councils have had to restrict people from building on properties they own in what they deem high-risk areas. So, for example, down at Golden Beach, East Gippsland, exactly. places like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And d- direct action has already been taken in places like Port Ferry, where there are a lot of low-lying houses that, as I spoke about before, that are at severe risk of flooding. And there's also a decommissioned landfill within the dune, which is at risk of exposure to the ocean. So the, the local council there and the community have worked together and they've built a stone barrier against the dune to protect it from exposure to the ocean and reconfigured the South Beach shoreline, the rock shoreline, and uh, reconstructed the East Beach seawall. So there's been some good measures being taken over there. And then, as we talked about, Golden Beach can't build houses. And then in other council areas, they are still allowed to build houses in high-risk properties, but they need to apply for council consent for that. Okay. So what, what are some good examples for the buildings going ahead on the shoreline? What are some examples of good practice? Well, in Australia, we're very lucky to have many, many um, great environmental architects, um, <coughs> one of which would be Glenn Merkert, who is at the forefront of the eco designs in Australia. Yeah. Um, his influence has spread all across the globe um, and carrying his personal motto of touch the earth lightly. So his buildings will generally be built around the natural flora of the area rather than clearing it out. Yeah, lifting it up so that it's elevated. Yeah, and there are again, other good examples elevation. of that as well. Yeah. So Wilson's Prom, for example, the huts down there. Yeah, those are elevated, which is great because of avoiding flood risk, but it's also good because it allows natural vegetation to take place underneath and also allows all the native animals in the area to, like, doesn't interrupt their movement patterns and you can hear little wombats underneath, which is cute for visitors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any good examples of, like, public architecture, so amenities, amenities blocks? Yeah, so down at Sandringham, which is a local example for a lot of listeners, I guess, there is the Sandringham Amenities, which is built up on the foreshore, and that is made out of ecologically sustainable materials, and the roof is built so that it collects rainwater for reuse. And it's also built into the shoreline so it doesn't block anyone's beach views, and it also leaves the vegetation uninterrupted in the area. And there's something happening down at, um, is it Cape Patterson? Yeah. So there's a really exciting project down at Cape Patterson. It's a, it's, it prides itself at being Australia's first sustainable housing estate. And uh, they use rainwater from a communal rainwater tank, ecologically sustainable, sustainable materials such as earth blocks and sustainably sourced pine, and all use solar energy as well. And it's also built far enough back from the foreshore so it's not at any risk at flooding it within that next 100-year prediction. Okay. Any good examples from overseas? Um, we've got a few good examples, actually. Um, one would be... Ooh, actually. 
Might be like Baja Architects. Yeah, Baja Architects in the UK, actually. Um, they are a specialist architecture company who have designs with the interaction of water in mind. And one of the ideas they've taken is there's a building design called a sacrificial basement, which you can build in high flood risk areas. And the idea is that the basement exists to take the floodwaters instead of the house. And they've taken that to the next level by having it so that when that basement fills, their house is going to rise up, uh, the specific, specific house being the um, uh, amphibious house in Buckinghamshire. It's going to rise up with the floodwaters as the basement fills, but it'll still stay shackled to the foundation so you don't end down down the street at your nan's house or something. <laughs> <laughs> we, and unfortunately, we're rounding out of time rapidly here, but just yeah. quickly. So if I were to build a house by the beach, what are the legal constraints on me? Um, so luckily, uh, Dr. Beach, for your next multi-million dollar mansion, um, there won't be any special... <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> there won't be any special legal constraints as it's all just listed as general residential on the DELP website. There aren't any necessarily any special restrictions in terms of construction when you're backing onto a nature reserve or a foreshore. Sure, some councils will have specific guidelines, um, so like two-storey limits, get council approval for anything beyond that. But there's nothing really particular to preserving the surrounding environment. That seems pretty hard to imagine, but I guess it is. Yeah, it's true. We have to wrap this up. We've got to get out of here and make room for the doctors. Mm -hmm. um, so once again, I'd like to thank Africa and Callum for coming into the studio and sharing their ideas with us on um, coastal development in Victoria. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks so much for, for coming in, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, thanks also to Darren Cottam talking about drain detectives, Dr Surf with his surf report, and Neil Blake down at Mooney Ponds Creek uh, on next week's program. Rex and Terry are going to be in the house. Terry's going to be talking about diving in South Africa, which will be amazing. Thank you, Dr Beach. That's a pleasure. Thank you, Kent, so much. And just a reminder, too, you have until Friday... Uh, Friday? Wednesday. 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 Not Friday. You have to Wednesday at 5pm uh, to uh, pay up if you haven't already paid up. The following people have just done that. Sassy the Cat from Croydon North, renewing via the web to Radio Marinara in memory of Molly Polly Prissy Pants, the cattiest. <laughs> so thank you, Sassy the Cat. And uh, Corbin White from Carlton is renewing via the web to breakfast with a great donation as well. You can keep donating via the web or you can, uh, well, maybe via the web today would probably be the best way I of doing so, that. Yeah. yeah, but yes, just that reminder. All right, have a great Sunday. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. We'll catch you next week. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.